All right, we are back. I'm going to take up where I left off in our discussion about Jimmy Carter, one of America's great ex-presidents. I think rather than quote from the book, which I admittedly have not yet finished, I'm going to quote from some people who were commenting about the controversy that erupted when it came out. When Jimmy Carter's Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid hit the bestseller list, Shulamit Aloni, the former education minister of Israel, had this to say. And we should note that she has been awarded both the Israel Prize and the Emil Grunzig Human Rights Award by the Association of Civil Rights in Israel. Said Aloni, The U.S. Jewish establishment's onslaught on former President Jimmy Carter is based on him daring to tell the truth, which is known to all. Through its army, the government of Israel practices a brutal form of apartheid in the territory it occupies. Its army has turned every Palestinian village and town into a fenced-in or blocked-in detention camp. If that were not enough, the generals commanding the region frequently issue further orders, regulations, instructions, and rules. Let us not forget they are the lords of the land. And by now, they have requisitioned further lands for the purpose of constructing Jewish-only roads. Wonderful roads, wide roads, well-paved roads, brightly lit at night. All that on stolen land. When a Palestinian drives on such a road, his vehicle is confiscated and he is sent on his way. On one occasion, I witnessed such an encounter between a driver and a soldier who was taking down the details before confiscating the vehicle and sending its owner away. Why? I asked the soldier. It's an order. This is a Jew's only road, he explained. I inquired as to where the sign was indicating this fact and instructing other drivers not to use it. His answer was nothing short of amazing. It is his responsibility to know, he said. And besides, what do you want us to do? Put up a sign here and let some anti-Semitic reporter or journalist take a photo of it so that he can show the world that apartheid exists here? Said Shulamit Aloni, indeed, apartheid does exist here. And our army is not the most moral army in the world, as we are told by its commanders. Sufficient to mention that every town and every village has turned into a detention center and that every entry and every exit has been closed, cutting it off from arterial traffic. Later on, she notes, Did man of peace President Carter truly err in concluding that Israel is creating an apartheid? Did he exaggerate? Don't the U.S. Jewish community leaders recognize the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination of March 7, 1966, of which Israel is a signatory? Are the U.S. Jews who launched the loud and abusive campaign against Carter for supposedly maligning Israel's character and its democratic and humanistic nature unfamiliar with the International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid of 30 November 1973? Apartheid is defined therein as an international crime that, among other things, includes different legal instruments to rule over different racial groups. In the past, the U.S. Jewish community leaders were quite familiar with the meaning of those conventions. For some reason, however, they are convinced that Israel is allowed to contravene them. And sound is sounding a similar note is James Zogby, the pollster whom I was privileged to interview when I was working over at Capitol Public Radio some years back. Said Zogby, Former President Jimmy Carter has written a little book about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a little book that's created a big storm. In describing his effort, Carter noted that he set out to accomplish two major objectives, to collect his personal reminiscences and observations based on his early years as a peace negotiator, and later as an observer of three Palestinian elections, and also to provide a debate within the U.S. about the issues that must be addressed for there to be a lasting 
Israeli-Palestinian peace. The book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, has, it appears, been somewhat successful in accomplishing these goals. Carter tells his stories well, presenting them in a delightfully conversational manner. Not a heavy or laborious book to read. It has been selling extraordinarily well. But even before it was released, there was a hue and cry from opponents whose objections had focused on two issues. First, the title, which describes the options facing Israel as it pursues its current policies. As described by Carter, when Israel does occupy this territory deep within the West Bank and connects the 200 or so settlements with each other with a road and then prohibits the Palestinians from using that road, or in many cases crossing the road, this perpetuates even worse instances of apartness or apartheid that we witnessed even in South Africa. Second, we have the observation which Carter makes at the very end of the book, where he notes that there are constant and vehement political and media debates in Israel concerning its policies in the West Bank. But because of powerful political, economic, and religious forces in the U.S., Israeli government decisions are rarely questioned or condemned. Voices from Jerusalem dominate our media, and most American citizens are unaware of circumstances in the occupied territories. On both counts, said Zogby, the former president's observations are well-founded, coming out of his three-decade-long experience in dealing with the Israeli-Palestine conflict. He goes on to note that when, as president, Carter helped to negotiate the Camp David Accords, the Likud government of then-Prime Minister Menachem Begin was in the early stages of implementing an ambitious settlement program in the West Bank. At that point, there were 50,000 Israeli settlers living in the occupied territories, mostly along the Green Line, which is the 1967 border separating Israel from the West Bank. According to the 1978 Likud Initiative, the intention was to make concrete the right to Eretz Israel, which is their word for, you know, the Israel of biblical times, by constructing settlements and roads around the settlements of minorities, i.e. the Palestinians, and in between them, in order to deny the Palestinians' territorial contiguity. Condemning this practice as a clear violation of international law and U.S. policy, the U.S. voted for the United Nations Security Council resolution, which Carter reprints in full. Israel was not deterred. It continued to seize more Palestinian land and build more settlements. Even during the Oslo decade of the 1990s, settlements continued to grow, doubling in overall size, as did the construction of Jewish-only roads designed to connect the settlements to Israel and to further encumber Palestinian freedom of movement. Today, there are about a half million settlers in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. Carter is right when he refers to this as apartheid. Under apartheid in South Africa, black populations were separated into so-called homelands. There were four different homelands. They were spread all over the country. They did not connect with one another. They were all organized and run by different groups for the purpose of dividing the black populations and setting them upon one another. When Jimmy Carter referred to it as apartheid, he knew what he was talking about. We salute his efforts, and we'll have more to say about this in the future. All right, on a much happier note, let, let, let's, let's, let's move off the Middle East and all the grimness of that and get a little closer to home here. And uh, maybe talk about some things going on on campus. 
and it's been a long time since I was a, uh, a student here, so we need to get someone a little closer to the action to join us. And so, so it's my pleasure to say at this point, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Graham Smith. Thanks a lot, Doug. It's nice to be here. Graham, I know we talked about coming on here and talking about, about vocab. Graham, I know we talked about discussing some interesting vocabulary, and I want to do that with you in a little bit, but, but something has detoured me. Uh, prematurely that I want to ask you about. There's apparently an article in um, The Atlantic that is quite an interesting read about what's going on on campus. And the title of the article is rather provocative. It is The Coddling of the American Mind. Subtitled, In the Name of Emotional Well-Being, College Students Are Increasingly Demanding Protection from Words and Ideas They Don't Like. Here's Why That's Disastrous for Education and Mental Health. (laughs) I hate to put you on the spot, but um, I have to just ask you, because I don't, I don't know, this was, I'm reading the little summary of it in um, the week, got me to pull up the article uh, online and start reading it. I, I was unfamiliar with the term trigger warnings. Doug, I've actually, I've actually read this article and I had to, I had to stop halfway through because he, uh, it, 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 had, it had the feeling of an Ayn Rand book where the first 90% of a sentence makes a lot of sense, but then the last 10% is where he comes up with a absurd conclusion that has nothing to do with the first 90 percent well i have i have to confess graham i haven't read the the entire article i got about 75 percent of the way through and let's assume that i'm still in the good part <laughs> where it all makes sense i i guess my question to you is that do you run into this on an everyday basis or this these things called microaggressions uh and and trigger warnings is this just a part of everyday life now on campus uh, no it's not and that's my whole problem with the article is, is okay. the the whole thing is completely overblown he's cherry picking individual instances from a huge university system and saying that it's endemic of a larger problem that oversensitivity is is hampering uh, the learning climate and generally having a negative influence on everyone in the UC system. I just don't think that's true whatsoever. It, it may appear that way if you spend a lot of time on Facebook and you see a lot of uh, overzealous people sharing angry, uh, angry memes and and stuff like that. Just to stop you right there, I mean, uh, Facebook is cited in the article as something that that has. Uh, instructors fearful because they figure that students will get together, gang up, and and form a mob that says so and so is insensitive, and like, how do you defend against that? You just really don't have to. It's it's really easy if you spend a lot of time on the internet to think that think that extreme opinions are more common than they actually are. One person who yells loud enough can give the appearance of a hundred people, but in the real world, that's just not the case. I can count on one hand the number of times in my entire life I have seen a, a patently ridiculous example of oversensitivity like he talks about in the article. Well, that said, I'm not a college instructor. I know when I went to go talk down in, in, in Orange County with, uh, with James Fallon, uh, about his book, The Psychopath Inside, he, he, he said that, you know, there was a change in the 90s, starting back in the 90s. He said, we, we ought to be very cognizant now of, of political correctness. And he goes, we couldn't do the things now that we did with you guys back in the 80s. And he's, he's you know, telling it to me from his side of the street. So I, I don't know. Political correctness is, is just a mean way of saying being nice to people who are different than you. And there's nothing, there's nothing in, inherently wrong with that. Well, like everything, you know, everything can start out to be a good idea on a basic level and get carried to an illogical extreme. And I think that's what they're claiming has happened here. And and the article does talk about like, you know, I mean, I'm of a different generation than you, obviously. And that's why I'm asking you questions about what millennials are are doing right now. But baby boomers like myself and and your parents were uh, were allowed, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 
to 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 run around unsupervised, and that that in in an era now where everybody's images are on milk cartons, and everyone seems to think that children are being abducted off the streets on a daily basis, uh, has led to people being prosecuted and CPS getting involved if they have to let their kids play in a park. So there is there is this thought that there has been a huge societal swing, and I think that's part of what's manifesting here in college. Maybe, but those are two problems that may appear similar on the surface, but are totally unrelated. The general concern for the physical well-being of yourself and your family is not that that's not really related to uh, to being afraid of offending minorities or or other people. Maybe, but isn't it all part of a culture of fear where we're afraid something bad's going to happen, so we take extraordinary efforts to make sure that nothing bad will happen, but bad things do happen in life and isn't isn't it perhaps more important to roll with the punch when they do i mean that's that's how that's how traditionally people have thought of it and people writing this article are taking the viewpoint that like we've we've crossed a line here somewhere along the way that maybe hasn't been such a good thing maybe but i i personally have never felt that i've had to uh, adjust my behavior to to cater to someone else being oversensitive i i haven't found it that hard to be politically correct to be honest Knowing your parents, as I do, Graham, I would have a hard time imagining that you would go out there and be adult <laughs> in dealing with other human beings. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> well, we all have our moments. Anyway, Graham, I don't want to beat this dead horse. I haven't even, I have not fully read this Atlantic article. I think I'm going to probably uh, reserve it for a future show talking about, about it at greater length. But I got to tell you, from my perspective, looking at what was the norm a generation ago to what is the norm now, I do think that there's just something to be worried about. Well, to quote from the article, I mean, they, they call it a microaggression if somebody kind of jokes to an Asian student, well, you're supposed to be good at math, right? <laughs> like This is termed some sort of heinous thing to say to somebody. It's like, you know, sometimes just a little bit of sense of humor in the middle of all this would go a long way. Well, I, I guess I can't argue with that, but, but as, a, uh, as a straight, white, middle-class male... My, my opinions on race relations don't hold a lot of weight. One might take the viewpoint, Graham, that to say that your opinions are invalid it would, would be a racist statement. But I think we'll just leave it go at that today. All right. We got a little bit heavy here. This has been a heavy segment. Let, let's, make, let's make a completely lighthearted thing on our third segment, if you'll stick around. And let's talk about some, some word origins and phrase origins and have some fun with that. What do you say? Usually I have, to, I have to force people to sit down and listen to me talk about etymology. So, yeah, let's do it. Good, good. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and Graham Smith will stay with me in our third segment, and let's let's talk words. 